0: up guys my name is KJ and this is Watt Theology. Now today is a very special episode because I was able to get two special guests Mr. Daniel and Mr. Sean. If you do not know them they are the host of the Particular Baptist podcast and they're on YouTube, Spotify and other different resources out there and so you can guys can look them up and you'll definitely find them and there's a very special podcast week. I'm always encouraged as I listen to the podcast but today they came on board to talk about you know what helped them start their ministry as far as a podcast you know, why they started it up, as well as the ministry they're doing right now in their own town. But um, the, a special part is that they were able to help me come on today, you know, come on this episode and um, walk through chapter one of the confession. And so every Thursday around 11 o'clock or noon, I'll be releasing an episode through a chapter of the confession. And so stay tuned for those guys. But when we come back, Mr. Sean and Mr. Denver. What's up, guys? Can y'all hear me? Hey,
1: Khalil. How you doing? Can, y'all, can both y'all hear? Yeah, yeah. And you're just fine. Can you hear me?
0: Yes, sir. Is it pretty clear on my side? Yeah. All right. I think, do we have Sean as well?
2: Yeah. Can you hear
0: me? Yes, sir. Cool. All right. Um, my name is KJ. This is Wathiology, and I have two special guests for me. Can you guys introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. Uh, my name is Daniel
2: Vincent. Um, I'm the host of the Particular Baptist Podcast. And I'm uh, Sean Sheatham. I'm the other host of the uh, Particular Baptist Podcast.
0: Uh, What's some some platforms you guys are
1: on? Um, We're on Spotify. For the podcast, we're on multiple platforms. But I guess the biggest (laughs) one, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts. We're also on YouTube. Um, and we started live streaming a few weeks ago um, to Facebook, so we're starting that as probably our biggest platform now for the podcast. I see you
0: guys. I see you guys um, started the Catechism as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we started going yeah. to the uh, An Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins. Yep.
0: All right, and what what kind of inspired you guys to like start up? You got your podcast.
1: Um. So I started the idea. Sean, was it back in March? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, I,
2: th- I think it was. We're approaching a year at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think we're starting year when we came up with the idea, um, but we actually started the podcast. I think in May, we started talking about it, and we wanted to. I wanted to take some time to plan and and stuff before we actually dive into it. But I think we started in May. We started going through. We actually started with a response to Leighton Flowers, one of his articles. That was our first episode. And then I think we started going to the confession um, either right after or soon after that. We went through some of the chapters in there. Um, and it seemed to, you know, it was slow going at first, but it seemed to take off and um, did pretty well. The, 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 uh, the ministry initially, I started as really just like a reform meme page on Facebook. Uh, I didn't anticipate us doing a blog or, um, or starting a podcast. So, you know, the Lord was gracious and, and pushing it to where it was, uh, now and, uh, we enjoy it.
0: I know for myself what kind of to you guys' channel. I think I was, like, searching online, because I have a um, a couple of Presbyterian friends, mm-hmm. and then we go back and forth about, you know, the, <laughs> the covenants and baptism. and I was like, um, I don't think the early church kind of, you know, all held to, you know, this, you know what you guys believe in. I think I searched online for a couple of things, and I found the episode you guys did on the early church history, kind of mm-hmm. walking through, and how people didn't hold to, like, that particular view, and that's kind of how... I got caught in. I think another episode too, I think I watched a couple of episodes on you guys breaking like the confession down and covenant theology.
2: Okay. Yeah, that's, yes. uh, Go ahead, Sean. that's a big topic of ours. Um, we are 1689 federalists and we're really big into that. Um, that, that's the reason I'm a Baptist right there because I think, uh, that view of the, the covenants is, uh, correct. So we, we really like to, uh, Obviously, we have our hands in a a lot of different subjects that we think are important and that we try to promote, but that's uh, definitely one of them.
1: Yeah, we we did do an episode. I'm sorry, Khalil. You go, man. Um, So we did we did do an episode uh, where we did a response to Reform Forum. I don't know if you're familiar with them um, on covenant Mm -hmm. theology. Um, So, yeah, as Sean said, that is a that is something we are very passionate about, we believe is is an important topic. Um, and that I think early particular Baptists believe that as well as a big distinguisher from their Presbyterian Anglican and Puritan brothers, but.
0: Now, uh, today I want to kind of get you guys help to kind of help me walk through the confession, but Mm -hmm. I I guess just take a step back. Um, how would, how would you guys describe what a confession is and like kind of like the importance of a confession, you know, what's the point of having confession?
1: Sean, you want to take that one?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> um, so what is a confession? Ultimately, it's a uh, a statement of belief. Obviously, when it comes to the 1689, which we would hold, it's a, it's a rather long statement of belief, and it goes into a, a lot of uh, different topics. But ultimately, what it boils down to is a, uh, a uh, what do you believe? It's a confession of what you believe. Um, why you would want to have a confession? at least in a written form, because ultimately we do think that people, um, even if they don't have a written one, they do have a confession of some sort. It's just probably in their head. Uh, We think that having a written one is helpful in that it shows exactly what we believe. If anyone ever has a question, what do do those particular Baptists believe, they can go to our confession to the the section and then read about it. Um, Obviously it doesn't encompass every single subject that it possibly could but it's a very good um in-depth view of what we would believe and um our ideas, is what we believe about the bible can therefore be promoted or critiqued and we even think that the critique is helpful um when you know exactly what somebody believes it's ha- that's helpful to frame the argument as opposed to trying to figure out what somebody believes and making mistakes and guessing and uh it's, it's just more of a messy conversation as opposed
0: to when it's, um, written out. Hmm. What was it that kind of like led you guys to kind of be in particular Baptist?
1: Oh, wow. Um, so I've been (laughs) in the reformed faith for most of my life. Um, I started off in the Presbyterian church. My, my dad came from an independent fundamental Baptist background. Um, his dad was a fundamentalist, Baptist preacher, and is now a Reformed Baptist, but that's kind of his background. But uh, my grandfather got us, my family, into um, Reformed, um, if you will. And so we started off in a, in a Presbyterian church. Um, we were associate members of a Presbyterian church, obviously not subscribing to infant baptism, but we attended. And then we started getting into Reformed theology, um, not or Reformed Baptist theology, not too long after that. Um, so, ever probably, I don't know, since I was maybe about 10 years old, I grew up starting in Reformed Baptist circles and I've uh, been in there ever since.
0: That's awesome, right there. I know, um, just when you think about like Reformed theology in general, like we're already like the minority, and then you start talking like particular Baptists <laughs> and Reformed Baptists. Like, <laughs> it's even smaller. In the minority. <laughs> yeah. I know like guys like William Kiffin and John Bunyan, like it's just Nehemiah Cox, all those guys, like it's just kinda small. But like we do have some pretty giants of the faith as well on our side, especially Prince of Preachers Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. What what's like what's some of you guys' influences that y'all love, like particular Baptists?
2: Well, For me, just describing my background very briefly, um, growing up, uh, my family did not go to church. At some point, I decided I was a Lutheran, although not for very good reasons. I don't think I, well, I I know I wasn't saved at the time. And I started uh, attending a very theologically liberal Lutheran church. And at some point, I got turned on to James White. um, And I was listening to him talk, and it's like, oh, well, I guess... Going through his exegesis of John six like oh, I guess Calvinism is true then so even though I was still attending the church I was a Calvinist and then I was beginning to see that it was basically a dead church that uh, the people in there were not saved And I was wrestling with what was going on there Um, So I I was reading through the scripture and coming to that covenant theology of realizing hey You're not in the covenant just because you were baptized or just because you were born um, to Christian parents, um, that it's really, um, faith, um, by faith, we know we're in the covenant. It's the new birth. Um, so I I sought out after I decided to leave that church because the pastor was teaching absolute heresy that, um, I sought out a, a Reformed Baptist church. And since then, obviously I have been exposed to Spurgeon and really appreciated and all these Reformed and Catholic, uh, Baptists.
1: Yeah, so um,
2: I, I, kind of along the same lines
1: as Sean, James White was definitely a, has been a huge influence. Um, Paul Washer, I think early yes. on in kind of my early adult life, I had really started listening to him. And remember the he came out with that epic sermon um, where he preached. I can't remember where it was, but it was that youth sermon that he did that was very convicting and was very popular for a time. Um, so Paul Washer definitely Um, Later on, I would say um, James and Sam Renahan, James Dalzall, more recently, has been very influential um, with his um, discussions on divine simplicity, God's auseity, things like recovering that in Reformed Baptist circles again. Um, So, yeah, those are some of the, I think, some of the biggest names that have been most influential to me. RC Sproul, obviously. Yeah.
0: I know for myself, it's kind of crazy, but, like, you know, when I first got saved, I was, like, really heavy on Paul Washer because, like, um, the verse that brought me, like, the kind of the faith was, like, the, the same, you know, verse that Washer preached, in Matthew 721. Mm-hmm. But, like, so I started off in the faith, heavy on Paul Washer, and then my mentor over me, he kind of pointed me to Jesus. Mm-hmm. He loved Johnny Mac, and so I started listening to Johnny mm-hmm. Mac. And as you know, Johnny Mac, you know, he's least leaky dispensationalist. <laughs> and so I started trying to kind of do dispensationalism in my thinking. But, like, I'm pretty sure, like, if somebody would kind of, like, walk me through you know what is covenant theology i'm pretty sure like i probably would have always ascribed to like the you know reformed baptist view of the covenants cuz i like, it just made the most sense mm-hmm. but like i was dispensational like in my thinking as far as like eschatology and stuff like that but like recently like you know uh, sometime last year uh, me and my wife started attending a reformed baptist church and i was like for myself i always thought you know being reformed was just calvinistic but, like i told you guys i have a presbyterian kind of best friend mm-hmm. And he was always saying, hey, man, you need to be before?" I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm already reform. I, you know, I believe in all five points of Calvinism. And so he kind of started walking me through that. And then my pastor, he started telling me kind of what reform theology is about the sixteen nine. and nine. And then like, it's kind of like I got to say it all over again. Once I find out these guys and reform theology, it was just amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, when it all starts coming together and it's, it's very, you see the consistency of it. And it's not just, you know, a system that's made by Calvin, you know, which is really an anachronism, I think. It's really found in scripture, you know, and you see these consistencies throughout the, the scriptures, of the covenant theology, predestination, um, man's moral state before God. And, and it all comes together and it's really glorious. Yeah, That's
0: amazing, man. I was going to ask you guys, like, are you guys doing the ministry
1: out there right now? Yeah, Sean and I are actually uh, both deacons at our, um, at our church. Sean was actually just um, formally established this past Sunday. Uh, we had our laying on of hands service, praying over him, and uh, he's been, he's formally established as a deacon at our church. So it's uh, so we minister in our church. Uh, we both teach Sunday school at our church. Um, I've preached a couple times.
2: Um, so yeah, we're very active in our in our uh, in our church life. We do also um, occasionally go out to a local abortion clinic to minister there. I haven't actually been out in a while, but uh, that is also something we'll do.
0: Mm. Yeah, That's amazing right there. Uh, what church do you guys attend to?
2: We go to uh, Covenant Reform Baptist Church, and that's in uh,
0: Warrington, Virginia. That's awesome. That's awesome. So is anybody out there, you guys can definitely attend that church. Um, for myself... I guess you can call me like a pastor's intern at my church in Christ Redeemer Church. It's Reformed Baptist Church here in Palm Arkansas. So, a little bit of city and a little bit of state. So. Yeah, a pastor is actually from Arkansas. <laughs> I'm
1: not ex- I don't remember where, but he has family down there, and that's where he's from originally. Um, so, but yeah. And I'm I'm sure you're probably, you know, Pastor Jeff Johnson being down in the area too. Yep.
0: He was on an episode last season. So, I definitely know him. He has a seminary up here in Conway okay. too. Okay. Okay. Yes, I know him pretty well. But I, I want to kind of, um, I guess, kind of push us to like this topic, um, chapter one of the Holy mm-hmm. Scriptures. And you guys already kind of all defined what a confession is. And so my last episode, I don't know if you guys know this person, but his name is uh, Jake Stone. Mm-hmm. He kind of did like an excellent job. with kind of laying out, you know, who the particular Baptists were, what's the point of a confession, you know, why we need confessional churches and kind of like, you know, give all the history about the confession. But now when we open up the confession, the very first chapter you see is of the Holy Scriptures. I guess my first question to you guys is, why do you guys think that you know these um, men of God started off with the Scriptures and not God, for example?
2: So uh, that's an interesting question. If you do a survey of all the confessions of the Reformed, uh, the Reformation era, the 15th and 16th, or sorry, the 16th and 17th centuries, um, they will either start with, on God or on the scriptures. Uh, There's none that do anything else. And obviously it makes sense from a Christian's perspective. You're gonna either start with, well, who is our God, or you're gonna start with the scriptures, the scriptures being the way by which we know God. Um, Ultimately the reformation, or the core element of the reformation was uh, religious epistemology. How do we know what we know? Um, Rome saying, well, it's the authority of the church, ultimately, with the reformers saying, no, it's uh, by the infallible scriptures that we know truth. So um, the reformed brethren, ultimately, this chapter um, comes from the Westminster. um, But that that group of reformed brethren wanted, I suspect, wanted to highlight the religious epistemology aspect of it. This is how we know truth. This is how we know our God.
1: Yeah. And along those lines, I would say, um, yeah, it's probably because without knowing specifically what the writer's intent was, but I think it was to establish that we can't know who God is apart from the scriptures, um, at least in terms of how God has chosen to reveal himself. So if you start with the scriptures as the ground and authority, Um, of all knowledge of God then you can move into a proper understanding of who God is and I I think that might be where that came from with regards to the order you know you're starting with scriptures and then you're starting with the doctrine of God after that
0: that's amazing right there I want to read um, this first little sentence right here for you guys I kind of let you guys kind of take it over but chapter one of the holy scriptures the very first sentence it says the holy scriptures are the only sufficient certain and infallible standard of all saving knowledge faith and obedience so we think about that sentence alone what kind of is that kind of talking about
1: so it's saying that it there is no other authority that is truly infallible for us to be able to appeal to um with regards to how we're supposed to live how we're supposed to worship how to know who god is so we're to appeal to scripture alone in, and that's where the sufficiency of it comes in and i think that's appealing to second timothy 316 talking about scripture as being the only sufficient means by which we can know god and obey him um i think that's where that's referencing
2: yeah ultimately the backdrop of this is the reformation where you mm-hmm. have rome saying that um It is um infallible and that you need rome to understand the scriptures because it because it is the infallible interpreter and this is a succinct uh declaration that no that's not true the word of god in of itself is um sufficient and infallible and certain um yeah it's um it's just putting that right out in front for us um yeah
0: now um, the next part of this paragraph is that the light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness wisdom and power of god that people are left without excuse however these demonstrations are not sufficient to give knowledge of god and his will that is necessary for salvation
1: yeah so yeah. That, with regards to this so what the writers are saying here is that nature in and of itself while it reveals who God is, you know, it, we, Romans 1, I think, is the most explicit place that talks about this, that creation shows us the power of God. It manifests God's nature as it relates to his ability to create and points back to him. However, we can't know him specifically without the scriptures. There's no, um, you know, unless God had come up with some alternative way of showing himself but he's chosen to do it in the scriptures. So this is the only place that we can know him specifically. You can't know Jesus specifically from looking at a tree. You can't know Jesus by looking at the rain falling. You have to have specific revelation that points back to who he is. And more importantly, with salvation, we can't be saved by looking at creation. We have to be saved by looking to the creator of it. And we have to know who that creator is in order to do that. So they're saying here is that natural revelation does reveal God to some extent, but it can't reveal him specifically at the level we need to be able to obey him and in the ability to be saved, more importantly.
0: What would you kind of say, I guess, for like people, um, you know, those unreached people groups? How would you guys kind of, you know, deal with that issue? I know some people would be like, you know, well, people can, you know, God can save somebody in a dream. You know, look at Paul. He was on his way to Damascus. You know, God knocked him on a horse. You no, know, God can do the same, but here the writers of our confession is saying, No, it's only special revelation that can save somebody through the scriptures alone. So, how would you guys kind of deal with that issue? So, uh,
2: yeah, obviously, when people ask that question, there's also a uh, an issue of they don't have a, fundal, a fundamental understanding of man's problem because they have they have the idea oh man's innocent so if somebody never heard of jesus it's unfair in a sense that uh they would be condemned but uh we know actually and it's a proof test text for this paragraph uh romans two fourteen and 15 um for when the gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law these having not the law are law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Um, so this shows that even the Gentiles have an awareness of what God's righteous requirement is, and that's sufficient to condemn them. They're condemned in their sins. They know there is a God and they have a general idea of what uh, he requires of them. And they know, and they know they fail to uh, live up to it. But um, ultimately the uh, Bible tells us that um, it's only by the word of God that faith comes. Uh, faith comes in no other way, um, and I think is it Romans chapter ten. I really should know this off the top of my head. I think yes, yeah. Um, uh, starting at uh, verse thirteen in Romans chapter ten, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So this this passage makes no sense if people can be saved in a way other than per, by preaching, by preaching the word of God. That's the sole means by which uh, saving faith comes to a people. So I understand There's a lot of people out there that would be uncomfortable with that idea. But ultimately, that gets back to it's because they think man is innocent in his uh, unbelieving state. And that's just not true. All men are condemned and they need the word of God preached to them in order to be saved.
1: Yeah. And also, too, um, God has written his law in men's hearts. Um, You know, Romans chapter two talks about this. The Jews had God's law given to them directly. Gentiles had God's law written on their hearts. And so they know what is right and wrong. Um, They know, even if they worship a false God, they are suppressing the truth of God. So there's a knowledge there that they are rejecting. And so there is a culpability in that respect. And so um, even the pagan uh, cannibal, um, the pagan cannibal tribe in an island somewhere out in the Pacific is going to be just as guilty at a very basic level because they have the knowledge of God and creation and they have the knowledge of God in their conscience through his law and they suppress that. And so God holds them accountable for that knowledge. Um, I do think there's levels of knowledge. You're going to be held more accountable for what you know. um, But at that very basic level, those who are unreached are going to be held um, accountable based on the knowledge that God has given them through creation and his law written on their hearts. So that's, a, a way I would respond to that
0: um, assertion okay okay I'll read these couple of you know these last couple of sentences I can't kind of let you guys deal with this but it says therefore the Lord was pleased at different times in various ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world the Lord put this revelation completely in writing Therefore, the holy scriptures are absolutely necessary, because God's former ways is revealing His will to His people have now ceased. How do you guys kind of want to deal with that?
2: <laughs> um, you want to take that? No. Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Sean. No, I was asking if you wanted to take that or. Sean. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: no, I, I can, I'll take a stab at it. Um, so I think it, this is just talking about the means by which God um, wanted to reveal Himself, because especially at the end here, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto His people being now ceased. So I think that's a reference to the spiritual gifts, um, you know, speaking in tongues or any further revelation that would have been um, done under the new Testament period, or even in the old Testament period, God revealing himself through his prophets and giving the word of God to his people. Um, Essentially, I think it goes back to the sufficiency of scripture. It's been written down. It's been, solidified. There's no need to, um, add more to it. Um, what we have is sufficient and it's what God has chosen to reveal to his people. Um, and those methods that were previously used to bring the word of God, um, are now, are now ceased. So that's how I take that.
2: It's also, it's helpful, as uh, the confession says, uh, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth. It's helpful mm-hmm. to have the word of God in written form. I, as a believer today, whenever I have a question about what God's will is on, whatever the subject might be, I can turn to my Bible and uh, look at the relevant verses and figure it out. If um, If we were still in a period where, we have prophets speaking and they might not be speaking constantly. Um, I'm having to remember, okay, what did that prophet say exactly? How does that relate? It's it's far better for the church to have the word of God in front of them that they can examine w- when need arises.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's kind of unique, man. I kind of, I know um, uh, the particular Baptist kind of, put this scripture reference out there as well, Hebrews mm-hmm. one verse one, it says, "God out these spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and making and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. as you guys know, Jesus is the Word that was with God. so the Bible kind of like what they're saying is how we know God, yes, exactly. Now, uh, paragraphs two and three, mm-hmm. those kind of long, <laughs> but it's basically kind of dealing with um, the Old Testament and New Testament. You guys know, you know, people came alongside and said there's additional books that should be added into the Bible. But um, both the Westminster, you know, the Divine Assembly and uh, the particular Baptists, they said no, not the apocrypha, but the Old Testament, New Testament. Why do you guys kind of deal with that? So,
1: with regards to the, um, regards to the apocrypha, um. I don't know what their reasoning was. I think they were probably just following the Westminster. I would say one, one argument historically against the Apocrypha's inclusion is that the Jews never actually considered the Apocrypha to be scripture. It was not stored up in the temple as the books of the Old Testament were, or the law and the uh, the Torah, things like that. So there's a historical argument for that. Um, I think they're helpful. Maybe As it, it says in our confession, no authority to God, um, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use than other human writings, So, you know, they can be historical literature, but we want not consider them to be authoritative. Um, and I think the fact that the Jews never did that is a, a good historical argument for their lack of inclusion.
2: Yeah. And I, I will note one of the proof texts for paragraph three um, is Romans three, two, Um, which uh, says, uh, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that were entrusted. Therefore, they would know what the oracles of God were. Um, And I do understand that people try to make the argument that, um, I guess, some of the diasporan Jews did hold to the Apocrypha. But as Daniel said, um, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem, in, in actual Judea, did not hold them to be scripture. And they did not lay them up in
0: the temple. Yeah, I guess the biggest thing we could say too is um, they went out inspired by God as well.
2: Yeah, that gets into a little bit into uh, which paragraph is it? Um, Paragraph five, number four. uh, More of how do we know what is scripture? Mm -hmm. But essentially does it bear testimony to the church of being scripture and we would we would say no ultimately um there might be some believers out there that uh do find them to be scripture but uh we find that the the holy spirit has testified to the church as a whole that they are not
0: hmm. I guess we can kind of like combine 4 and 5 so I can I read number 4 I'm right? Sure, you got to read number 5 <laughs> i got the show all right so number four it says the authority of the holy scriptures obligates belief in them this authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church but on god the authority alone who is the truth itself therefore the scriptures are to be received because they are the word of god
1: yeah so i would say that this is probably a direct response to rome given that rome claim that they were the ultimate authority on matters of faith and practice and that ultimately the scriptures were to be interpreted by them however they the writers of the confession along with the westminster divines were clearly stating that the authority is grounded in god himself there is no authority outside of god that should um get to interpret what the scripture says um in in terms of you know saying this is the ultimate authority outside of you know, God himself. So it's grounded in God as the ultimate being as uh, in in his own nature, as being God and the creator of the universe. So um, when scripture is spoken, it comes with that authority and we can appeal to it because of that. And that transcends church institutions, that transcends men, that transcends kings, uh, which was flat in the face of what Rome was trying to push um, during this time. So I think this is probably where that uh, where this thinking came from, but it was to establish the authority of Scripture in God, and because it co- comes with that authority, it has the ultimate authority with regards to how we are to live, how we are to worship, etc.
2: Exactly. Um, I think this is this is the core element of sola scriptura right here. I get the sense from talking to a lot of non-Protestants that they think when we say sola scriptura that's essentially us giving authority to the Bible or something. Um, Essentially it's our man-made tradition that the Bible is the ultimate authority. And it has to be understood that no, the reason why the scriptures have the authority they do is because they are the word of God. Mm -hmm. They are God speaking to us. And actually I'd like to read a a verse. I think that uh, hammers this home. Matthew, um, uh, 22, 31, and 32. And this is in the context of um, yeah, Jesus interacting with the Sadducees. And they've come to him with uh, their tricky question about the man with seven brothers and whose wife shall he be in the resurrection. And uh, in his response to them, he says, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you'll note, he says, that which was spoken unto you by God. Um, the Bible is God speaking to people. Obviously, this, this event that he's relaying was in, in uh, Exodus, and in there, God was speaking to Moses. But it's not merely that he's speaking to Moses. Anyone who picks up the Bible, just like the Sadducees, that's God speaking to them. And that is why it has authority, because there is no higher authority than God. It is, it's on God's authority. Um, and that's why we hold to Sola Scriptura, because we see nothing else that has that authority. And even if somebody were to claim they have authority, um, say, well, take the Pope, right? The Pope says he has the ability to uh, infallibly pronounce something. Well, guess what? We get to judge that by the word of God. And that makes the word of God automatically in a higher category because if it's being judged by the word of God, it's it's not in that same category.
0: I was going to ask you guys, too, you brought up a good point about uh, Sola Scriptura. I know a lot of people, when we when they think of Sola Scriptura, you know, scripture alone, they think that we mean that we cannot look at any kind of historical <laughs> um, books or, you know, resources, prophecies, you know, as resources to look at, you know, kind of see what the Bible says. Is that kind of what social means for somebody? That has no yeah, idea? Yeah, no, about,
1: not at all. Um, if you look at Luther, um, he clearly taught that the authority of scripture was needed um, to judge how the church was supposed to act and, and practice worship and such. But he also appealed back to the church fathers, the early church, particularly Augustine. I mean, he, uh, he was trying to follow in the Augustinian tradition of, uh, of salvation and, things like predestination. Um, So it clearly was not meant, if you just look at it on a historical level, not meant to exclude any type of historical um, writings, commentaries, appealing to church councils or fathers. It's just ensuring that those are not taking over or uh, going above and beyond scripture itself, the authority of scripture. They are subservient to it and can be a help because there's men who have done Uh, studies that and and discovered things in Scripture that we have not, that have come before us, that some of them died for. Um, And so having a proper understanding of uh, utilizing historical sources to help us understand and interpret Scripture is very helpful. Um, The me and my, the Biblicism movement is not biblical and not historically grounded in the Reformation at all. It's dangerous um, because you start to disconnect yourself from The church as a whole and thinking that you know it all and you have the knowledge to be able to interpret scripture yourself um, without utilizing other church um, materials i think is very dangerous now obviously we don't take that as far as the catholic church did and say well now we have to establish some some church count some overall church structure that can only determine those things but um, it's having a healthy balance of the two while keeping Scripture at the forefront, and those things are secondary, helps to interpret Scripture.
2: The example I like to go to is, um, does the Bible teach you how to program a computer or be a car yeah. mechanic? Ob- obviously not. The Bible is efficient in manner in um, regards to um, the Christian life, uh, mm-hmm. specifically in regards to who God is and salvation and how to live a holy life. But that's not to say that it's exhaustive. So we are perfectly um, able to read other books about whatever the subject might be. Sola Scriptura teaches that the Bible is the final authority. It's the sole infallible authority. So if it talks on something, that is what to be, what is to be believed. If somebody gives you um, a secondary authority, we'll say, like the confession. Um, we we think this is obviously a very helpful teaching guide, and we hold that it is it is true. But um, if we were to find something in here that was uh, incorrect in light of the scriptures, well, the scriptures are what uh, end up winning out. They are the
0: final authority. Hmm. That's a pretty good example right there, man. I kind of let you guys uh, touch on five, however y'all like, so go
1: ahead. (laughs) Um, So I think here it's following along with paragraph four, um, but I think it's starting to talk about why is scripture, scripture? You know, what are those divine qualities as Michael Kruger has talked about? Um, You know, what are those divine qualities that make scripture, scripture? Those things that are unique to it, that separate it from other writings, that point to a divine author. And I think that's really what is um, being talked about here. Um, Those things, you know, it's consistency. You know, it talks about the heavenliness of the manner, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style and the consent of all parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies. So distinguishing it from other writings. And these are the qualities that are given here that, or to show that this is the word of God. Um, and I know Michael Kruger in his book, Canon Revisited, um, has talked about, you know, the divine qualities. Uh, why do we believe the New Testament is the word of God? Well, it exhibits the same qualities that the Old Testament does with regards to those divine qualities. Um, and so those types of things are shown up here. It's consistency, it's, it's uniqueness, um, it's divine power that it, it exhibits in its writings. Um, So that's really what this paragraph is talking about here.
2: I do want to definitely highlight the last part of the um, paragraph. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Mm -hmm. So obviously there is a sense in which unbelievers do recognize the word of God is the word of God, not completely, but you'll often run into... Um, witnessing situations where just by the way they're reacting, the, the visceral nature of how the unbelievers are reacting, they sort of recognize that it's true, and they don't like it. But mm-hmm. in terms of the Christian, uh, I I can only speak from personal experience at this point. Um, after becoming a Christian and having the Word of God opened uh, open to me, my eyes open to it, and seeing its its divine majesty. Um, how the parts work together, um, how prophecy is foretold very subtly sometimes, and then fulfilled in Christ. Um, as a whole, it, it evidences itself by the holy, the witness of the Holy Spirit that it is the Word of God.
1: Now, one thing that's interesting, um, you know, along the lines that Shauna's saying, the confession doesn't go to simply just an anecdotal appeal like the Mormons do. Uh, you know, you I've. In my witnessing with Mormons, I've heard, um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit bore witness that the Book of Mormon is true. Um, well, anybody can say that. Or a confession, yeah. it, our confession points to, well, it, there's the inward illumination and there's also the external factors that help point back to that. So there's objective evidence that we can point to as it being the word of God, as well as the inward illuminating of the Holy Spirit. Um, but it's not just some sort of anecdotal experiential um, thing. It, it actually is the Word of God that displays itself in the very words that it presents. Um, so it, it kind of takes it on both on both sides, um, but I just thought I'd point that out. Yeah, that
0: is important. Hmm. Now, paragraph six, it says, the whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary Interference containing the holy scriptures. That sentence alone is kind of special, right there. about the continue reading. It says nothing is ever to be added to the scriptures either by a new revelation of the spirit or by human traditions. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward elimination of the spirit of God is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed in the Word of
1: God. Yeah. So I think what's what they're talking about here is that um, yes, scripture has given us um, specific guidelines on what we're to do. It is sufficient in what it's supposed in what it's presenting. But there are, I guess you could say, minor liberties that can be taken. And I think that's what's being talked about here, where it talks about there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the governance of the church and governance of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So I think this paragraph is appealing to the regulative principle in that scripture um, is to govern everything with worship and how we're to conduct our practice within the church, but also understanding that it doesn't give us an exhaustive list of how we're to worship or, um, or how we're to conduct uh, uh, worship or practices within church. You know, the Bible doesn't say whether you can or cannot use a pulpit when you're preaching. It doesn't say the pastor should or should not wear a tie while he's preaching it gives us general principles and guidelines on how we are to worship, which would be the regulative mm-hmm. principle. We follow the explicit teaching of scripture with regards to worship, but there's also things that we can use that fall within those guidelines that don't contradict them, that allow um, you know, based on maybe your, where you are culturally or those general principles laid out um, through common knowledge that kind of help to dictate how a church is to order itself. But I think that's, that's what's being talked about here.
2: You even have the example of Paul in First Corinthians telling the church um, that everything needs to be conducted decently and in order, mm-hmm. and yet he doesn't give specifics about, okay, well, what's the order of service then? So right. he's leaving it up to the church in Corinth how precisely to order it, but he's telling them that it needs to be in order. So uh, we can take by way of example that, that um Yes, some of the ordering of a, a church service is left to up to us, but the elements, uh, the fact that you need to have the Lord's Supper, um, those, the preaching of the word, those elements are to be retained. That's not something the church has the authority to modify or um, uh, do away with.
0: Hmm. Um when I think about it, let's go to number seven real quick. Uh, it says some things in scripture are clearer than others, and some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. However, the things that must be known, believe, and obey for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of scripture or another that the both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding and properly using ordinary measures
2: yeah um this is this is um an important one. Um, You will oftentimes get, um, say, Roman Catholics or other um, Christian groups that believe in a a strong tradition or a strong ecclesial authority that needs to set things. They'll come to you and say, oh, if you believe in Sola Scriptura, how is it that um, there's all these uh, Christian groups that believe differently than you? Clearly, if Sola Scriptura was true, then um, you would all be of one mind. Um, yeah. And I I I, I think that's a, a fundamental error. Just because the scripture um, is the final authority doesn't mean that every brother will always have full 100% knowledge of it. Um, and there are definitely brothers that, and they are brothers that disagree with us. Um, and we consider them brothers. It's not like they're not Christians. Uh, but um, that doesn't mean that doctrine is the same level of clarity in the scriptures. Um, it, it doesn't mean that, uh, that every doctrine has the same level of clarity in it. But as the confession says, um, the doctrine of salvation is clear. Uh, God can speak clearly if he so desires so that people will absolutely know what he's saying. He's all so powerful. Of course, he would be able to do this. And comes to salvation, absolutely. We think the scriptures are 100% clear, um, so that people are left without excuse, but other secondary doctrines, uh, tertiary doctrines may not be as explicitly laid out or as clear. And, um, we, uh, that's a debate among brethren at that point. Yeah.
1: It, it's really talking about the, what you would call the purpose, of scripture, the clarity of scripture. Scripture is clear and it has to be in order for us to know what God requires of us and who he is. But like Sean was saying, there are things that are not very clear. I, I think a perfect example of this, and this is a controversy, you know, I think has been a controversy for years. The um, controversy of head coverings, you know, First Corinthians 11. That's a very difficult passage to interpret. And, you know, good brothers take it different ways. Um but that's an example of a passage, I think, that regarding secondary issues that is not very clear um, necessarily, um, it, it, that's difficult to follow and understand, um, that we can kind of rest and go, okay, we can, we can do our best to, to interpret it, but there's, uh, there's going to be disagreements. But on core issues like the deity of Christ or the gospel or um, salvation, Those things are clear and have been laid out clear and can be known by proper hermeneutical principles, by proper preaching. Um, And that's what I think is being talked about here with ordinary means. Those things that God has given us to be able to properly understand his word Um, hermeneutical principles, I think, being one of the chief means. Um, So, yeah, I, I think that it's really talking about those core issues are clear in Scripture. God has made them very clear and that we can understand them through use of ordinary means, if not right away.
0: Hmm. Let me look at this one. So the other one is a little bit long, so let me read this real quick. It says the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the native language of the ancient people of God. The New Testament was written in Greek, which at times it was written was most widely known as the nations. These testaments were inspired directly by God by His unique care and providence, were kept pure down in the ages. They are therefore a true and authoritative, so that all religions, controversies, the church must make the ultimate appeal to them. All God's people have a right to and a claim of the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Not all of God's people know these original languages, so the scriptures are to be translated into the common language of every nation to which they came. In this way, the word of God may dwell richly in all so that they may worship him and in a manner through patience comfort the scriptures. When I think about this, I think about Tyndale, but what kind of comes to mind? So all, um,
1: disclosure? full disclosure, Sean and I actually disagree on the application of this. We actually did an episode um, where we had a little debate on uh, the Texas receptus versus modern critical text. Sean is a TR guy. I'm a modern textual critic guy, but um, so I'll just say that up front. Um, but we do agree, we both agree that this passage is talking about divine preservation, and we both agree that God has preserved his word um, throughout all ages. So, what the writers are, were talking about here at, you know, uh, on the place of disagree, uh, on place of agreement that Sean and I ground, God preserved his word through means of uh, writing his word down in these original languages. The Old Testament would be in Hebrew, New Testament would be in Greek. Um, and God preserved His Word throughout the ages. There was no text that was lost, um, and that's important because if if there is text that can be lost, then how can we know what we have today is actually um, God's Word, and how can we have any confidence that um, uh, that we know what God has spoken to us? So I, I think that's really the core. Um, you know, whatever view you take on the TR modern critical text, that's what is being talked about here. At the core of it is God has preserved his word and we can appeal to it because it's been preserved, because God's word um, has not been lost. We can truly go and say, yes, this is what God was saying to his people back here. And we can appeal to it truly um, with regards to faith and practice. And it's also, I think, a, um, a refutation of what the Catholic Church was doing. Um, the Catholic Church Wrote and, or at least their services were conducted in Latin. Um, the vulgar language of the people was not utilized. Yep. That was something that Luther came along and started doing. He started speaking in German um, when, with regards to some of these things. So he was trying, and he even created a Bible translation um, in German. The and Wick, um, I think it was uh, Wycliffe when he created his Bible translation was trying to get yep. the scriptures into the language of the people. So that they could understand the scriptures in their own language and that, you know, they're talking about here that um, not everybody knows Greek and Hebrew, not everybody understands those languages, even though there's great advantage in knowing those languages, Um, but not everyone has that ability. So being able to have proper translation is very important, Um, not only in the spreading of the gospel, but also in uh, ministering to God's people as a whole. Um, Because how can you, if you don't know what the word of God is, you can't be saved. I mean, the scripture talks about um, how will they know without a preacher? How will they know who to believe unless they've heard about him? And that comes through the preaching of the word of God. And so um, some kind of translation has to be done in order for uh, lay people to be able to understand what the scriptures are actually saying and what God is communicating to them and ultimately to bring salvation uh, to them.
2: And ultimately, um, uh, when it comes to the translation, that we also see this in the Bible. Um, one of the proof texts for this paragraph is uh, First. Uh, there's several from First Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 14, um, and there uh, Paul commends those that were speaking in tongues to not speak unless there was uh, someone who could interpret. Um, verse 27. If any men man speak in an unknown tongue let it be by two or the most by three and that by course and let one interpret but if there be no interpreter let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself mm. god um and then i also wanted to quote uh verse 23 If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers will they not say that you are mad um the idea being that um, if you're speaking in tongues and they don't know what's going on, they'll just say that you're, you're crazy. Um, Ultimately we need to know what's being said in order for it to be edifying to us. Um, And uh, in cases where it's in a different language, then that needs to be translated. And as Paul um, says, there needs to be an interpreter here. here. He clearly has no issue with, the um, with there being an interpreter, because you'll get people that say, "Oh, well, you can't really translate the scriptures because the meaning is lost." Well, Paul wasn't worried about the meaning being lost here in Corinth, so neither shall, uh, neither should we be worried about the uh, be worried about the meaning being lost. Um, translations are perfectly fine.
0: I think both of y'all both said it too that you know, God kind of preserves his word. I'm going to read paragraphs nine and 10 together and I kind of let you guys kind of break it up. But it, uh, paragraph nine it says the infallible rule for interpreting scriptures is the scripture itself. I believe we talked about that a little bit earlier, but it says, therefore, when there is a question about the truth and full meaning of any part of scripture, and each passage has only one meaning, not many, it must be understood in the light of other passages that speaks more clearly paragraph 10 it says the supreme judge for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all decrees of counsel opinions of ancient writers human teachings and individual interpretations whose judgment we are to rest is nothing but the holy scriptures delivered by the spirit in this scripture our faith finds its final word and i kind of close out this chapter with that yeah
1: essentially paragraphs. the paragraph nine at least um they're providing a, a hermeneutical framework by which to work by right? So we take the, the more clear scriptures and we use that to interpret the less clear. You know, we take the clear teachings on uh, the deity of Christ to interpret other passages that might seem to indicate that he was uh, only man or, or a mixture of God and man. So having a proper hermeneutic at, in, at that very basic level is very important.
2: Yeah, that'll, that'll lead you into error very quickly. If you go Mm -hmm. to a spot, um, that say you, your, it starts with you, um, interpreting an old Testament passage when the new Testament has spoken clearly on what the, uh, the application of that passage is, the prophecy has been fulfilled or whatever. If you start just with the passage, well, some of those old Testament prophecies can get a little generic or you're not quite sure how they, they, uh, they're fulfilled You want to start with what's clear and then read in light of that so that you don't go off into weird, um, weird or basically incorrect uh, interpretations. Um, Clear will always, always help you and guide you in your interpretation. Uh, Paragraph 10 is basically what we've been talking about already. Uh, Scriptures are the supreme judge by which all controversy of religion are to be determined. Um, If scripture is the word of God and nothing else is, then obviously um, scripture is the highest authority. It it is on God's authority. Um, Even if someone comes to you saying, oh, I have a message from God, it has to be interpreted or it has to be validated in light of what the scriptures say. Mm -hmm. Uh, they They are the final interpreter in that regard.
0: Hmm. I'm pretty sure both of you guys probably agree with this, but I like how we speak of today yes. is that you know the New Testament kind of interprets the Old, and like I told you guys for a lot of time, you know, most of most of my you know early mm-hmm. salvation, I was more kind of dispensational my thinking, but now I kind of understand clearly why it's so important to understand how like the New Testament interprets the Old, because like you think about this, like even Daniel, when he wrote his book, he mm-hmm. kept on saying, "Oh Lord, what does this mean? I don't even know what this means," and so kind of looking in the light of like the New Testament. They kind of explain what the Old was saying. And so we need the New Testament. To yeah, and out.
1: you look at the it Apostles, kind of even clear. Jesus. Well, yeah, Jesus himself interpreting Old Testament passages. Uh, Paul interpreting Old Testament passages. Um, if you're going into covenant theology, you see in Hebrews 8 the writer of Hebrews, you, interpreting what Jeremiah 31 means. So, yeah, using the, the New Testament understanding of the Old is very important. Um, and I think that's where our uh, Presbyterian brothers go wrong as they reverse it. The Old Testament interprets the New, um, and you get all kinds of problems with there. But we have to take what clearly is said about another passage and go with that um, and not uh, assume or eisegete something into a passage that is not there.
0: Yeah, I know for them it's kinda of, they they probably wouldn't say this, but it's it's a little bit similar to like kind of dismal session of thinking yep. in that, that like it's the physical mm-hmm. seat of the children who those promises belong to as well. <laughs> but let me let me, let me stop if I get canceled. <laughs> be glad. i be But I thank you guys I, both you guys so much for coming on, man. I enjoy listening to you guys' podcast. Oh, so no problem. Thank you for having guys. us on. on um
1: today. yeah, yeah, and we'll be sure to share your um uh, we'll make your podcast known yeah. on our platform. We'll share this episode. Um so, yeah, but we appreciate you having us on. Really enjoyed it. Yeah,
0: really enjoyed it. Thank you. No problem, man. I definitely got to have you on because I've been walking through this all year. Yeah, brother, let us know. Yeah, brother, us know. Um, yeah
1: we can try and set up some more times. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. Thanks, all right, man. Brother. I'm going to go watch the football. A I'll one. see you guys later, man. <laughs>